Many of us are perhaps familiar with the famous description of Mount Sinai from the Talmud, from Masachet Shabbat 88a, where the mountain is held over the heads of the Israelites. Exodus 19.17 says, And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the lowermost part of the mount. End quote. Rabbi Abdimi Barchama Barchasa said, The Jewish people actually stood beneath the mountain. And the verse teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, overturned the mountain above the Jews like a tub and said to them, If you accept the Torah, excellent. And if not, this will be your burial. While we may not go as far as Rabbi Abdimi in seeing God's manifestation at Sinai as an intentional threat, yeah, I'm not going with that interpretation. I'm with you. That's not, it's not, it's not, not inspiring. Even if we don't go that far, we ought well to recognize that the experience of Sinai, as the Torah describes and our tradition insists, was an experience of Yerat HaShamayim, of the awe and terror of standing before the one before whom you, we stand. So as I'm saying, even if we don't take it as a threat, the reason the Midrash comes about partly is the sense that God manifests, and we're supposed to have Yerat Shemayim. We're supposed to have real terror of the fact that God exists. And in prayer and at other points of our life, we're trying to summon the fact that we may not be visible like in Mount Sinai, but when we do the Torah service, even if invisible, that's the one before whom I stand, and we should be experiencing some of that Yerat HaShemayim. We should be experiencing at least sparks, at least some identification as we daven, that we are recreating Sinai in the Torah service in Amidah. Without it, we are merely experiencing identity without identification. One is secular. One is religious. Without yira, awe, one is going through the motions spiritually. Yirat Shamayim, inviting the spirit of awe and recognizing, knowing that one stands before God, is enacted in Judaism most ubiquitously in one ritual item, kippah. The kippah, as I'm sure people have asked you, standing on one foot, and you say, well, it's not in the Bible, and it's not in the Talmud even, but post-Talmudically it became the thing, and now we have to do it. And then you get into these debates about whether it's really law or it's really custom. But the origin is that you know before whom you stand. And the kippah is an act of humility, like the dome of Sinai above our heads, we wear the kippah to recognize that the reality of God, like kadosh, kadosh, kadosh in the haftarah today, the reality of God is really all around us. And so it's your, the, the reason is yirat shamayim, fear of heaven, awareness of God's real presence, and therefore humility. In 2019, for the conservative movement, Rabbi Jane Kamarek wrote a full tshuva on head coverings for women. And, I'd like, and she traces the history of head coverings. I'm going to ask you to give me your best intellectual attention because it's a inc- very complicated part of halakha that has at least three halakhic issues going on and today a fourth. In the Talmudic period, women covered their hair in public. It appears from us gleaning what things say in the Talmud. It wasn't a religious thing. Jewish women wrapped their heads in a scarf when in public. Although Talmudic material largely discusses individual instances of head covering, and by the way, I should say that that's really hair covering, not really head covering, the discussion of head covering in later halachic literature revolves around three general axes, 
It happens right after the Talmud finishes. The next period is the Gaonic period. It revolves around Kavod Hatzibor, respect for the congregation, Yirat Shamayim, humility because God's presence is everywhere, and expressions of Jewish identity, which do connect to gender. They go, we find in the Gaonic Tractate Sofrim, 1415, it's the key text about head covering for prayer leadership. It says the following. A minor reads Torah and translates, because before the Yitzchayim you had a maturgaman, someone would have to stand up and translate it for you during the Torah service. A child reads Torah and can serve as the translator. But they do not lead Shema and Yotzer Or. This is earlier in Shachari. And they do not pass before the ark as a prayer leader. And they do not raise their hands in the priestly blessing. And one who has holes in his garments, whose knees are visible, or his clothes are ripped, or one whose head is uncovered, they can lead Shema. But there are those who say, well, if you can see the knees and the clothes are ripped, he can still lead Shema. But with his head uncovered, it is impermissible for him to utter God's name in the Shema. And we say, either way, with covered or uncovered head, he may translate the Torah reading, but with an uncovered head, he may not read from the Torah, and he may not serve as the prayer leader before the ark, and he does not do the priestly blessing. So if you notice, the ripped clothes are really a matter of respecting the public. And it seems that the reason that you could do the Shema, even if your clothes were poor, was because you would do it from your seat. But once the davening began a little after the Shema, when the prayer leader moved to their stance before the ark, at that point, out of respect for the congregation, it's kind of like no jeans on the bima. And a poor person who would then daven would have to be given a good set of clothes. So you make sure they're taken care of. So it's respect. It's like wearing your Shabbos clothes. It's not, so there we have Kavod Hatzibor. Isaac ben Moshe, uh, ben Moshe of Vienna, known as the Or Zerua, the name of his halacha commentary, he was a leading halachicist of the Ashkenazim in the 1200s. And he says, in general, men should cover all their skins so as not to show their sores and discolored skin, but this does not apply to women. So for those who are like, those men are always trying to cover up the women, at least the Or Zerua was trying to cover up the men. Of course, it wasn't because they were afraid that men may attract the female gaze, uh, as we later hear with um, women being modest. But it's basically a similar idea. I mean, he relates it to skin, but he's like, men should cover up and wear long sleeves and pants in general. That's a proper way to be. And Moshe Israelis, the famous commentator, the Ashkenazic decisor for the Shulchan Aruch, applies the text from Sofrim this way. He extends the Sofrim's requirement of head covering when reading from the Torah to women. Shulchan Aruch states, all count for the number seven for reading the Torah on Shabbat, even a woman and a child who understands, for whom one blesses for them, but they can read. So a child can read Torah, they can't do the blessings, you bless for them. But the sages said a woman should not publicly read from the Torah because of the honor of the congregation. And Israelis adds, and it is forbidden to read from the Torah with an uncovered head. So this is complicated. Because on the one hand, we have the Shulchan Aruch saying, when you read from the Torah, you read with a covered head. Is it Kavod HaTzibor? Is it honoring the congregation, wearing your best clothes? Is it your Shamayim? We're not exactly sure, or some combination. And Israelis doesn't want women to read Torah because it embarrasses the men, but by implication, although it's not 100% positive, by implication, if a woman reads Torah, they should be covering their head for the reading. 
something special about the word of God. And, and that's why it is intersecting Shabbos clothes with understanding that you're saying the word of God. So does this mean that if a woman who does read from Torah, she needs to cover her head? It's open, but Rabbi Kanarek feels, yes, this should definitely extend to women. But I could say, unlike Rabbi Kanarek, are you saying it's culturally dependent? If it's because you're aware, it, it, it's humility before the presence of God, that's not culturally dependent. But if it's you can't wear jeans to church, that might be culturally dependent. Because you might be in a place where everyone wears jeans to church. So then it's not a violation of honoring the congregation. What counts as Shabbos clothes? So that I actually think this is a little bit open because do you, women have to wear the head covering or not? But by implication, if it applies to men, it should apply to women. Now how about a regular home amida? Let's get out of the shul for a second. Well, it's obviously not kavod hatzibor because there's no public there that you have to look good in front of. It has to be your atshamayim, respect for the one before whom you stand. So Rambam, Maimonides, codifies. One may not daven at home in your undershirt and not with a bare head and not with bare feet if the way of the place culturally where you are is not to stand barefoot before nobility, but to always wear shoes when doing so. So if you're a place where you take off your shoes when meeting the king, take off your shoes when you daven. If you're not, so we're back to culturally dependent. But if you have to wear your shoes in a place, then you better wear your shoes for God. And you don't say the Amidah without a head covering, even if you're at home. Yosef Kado writes the same thing in the Shulchan Aruch, adding that one wears shoes if the local custom would have you wear shoes when meeting a dignitary. Rabbi Kanarek concludes that davening implies respectful head covering in a way saying a blessing over food does not. So in other words, you'd have to put on the kippah for davening, amidah at home, in your bedroom, but not for doing a bracha over food. In that sense, it's not a male garment. It's a prayer garment, right? And that's important. It's not a male garment any more than shoes are a male garment, or an undershirt is a male garment. It's prayer garment. But if Caro explains it's how you'd meet a dignitary, then in our time, do women meet the President of the United States in head covering? Do men? So maybe we are extrapolating too much from this problematic. Does Yosef Caro's words permit a gender distinction? Now we're in the 1600s. The Taz, in his famous and influential commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. The Taz is uh, Rabbi David Halevi Siegel. We have the transition to male identity. So it's in the 1600s, this gets associated with men. He writes, the Gentiles take off their head coverings when they sit down to eat. But we should keep our head coverings on all the time to show that we know God is around us all the time. We do it for the fear of heaven, Yerat Shemayim. The Taz is responsible. We're not going to wear our, our hats to greet the king, but then take them off to eat because the true king is always above our heads, like Mount Sinai. He writes, and it appears to me that a strict prohibition concerning uncovering one's head for another reason, and that is because it's now along among the Gentiles that as soon as they sit down, they remove their hats. And if so, this is included in the rule, we should not follow in their ways. All the more so is this rule which has a reason because covering one's head teaches about the fear of heaven, as it says at the end of Tractate Shabbat. So there is a bit of a gender shift in the culture. If head covering was an everyday thing for women in the Talmudic period, in later periods, by the 1600s, 
It was a marker of Jewish male identity with a kippah or hat. The striking shift was recognized by the halachic designer Shlomo Luria, who was influential in the 1500s. He commented on the custom of men to cover their heads at all times, and he writes, but I am surprised they have the custom of a prohibition against an uncovered head at times other than prayer. Why are they wearing this kippah when they're not praying? And I do not know from where they derive this, because I have only found a prohibition against an uncovered head in regard to a woman, as it is in Tractate Nidarim about women making vows. The contemporary practice in North America of Jewish men wearing a kippah at all times, including this rabbi, outside the synagogue and at home, is a recent phenomenon. Among Orthodox males, the practice seems to have been established in the early 1960s, part of the larger public statement of Orthodox identity and pride. Is it identification or is it identity? For the conservative movement, it began in the 1970s following the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, not unlike the spread of the small-knit kippah in Israel during that decade. So it is a recent marker of male Jewish identity. Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, ultra-Orthodox decisor, one of the two great ultra-Orthodox decisors or influential ones, the, the top ones, ruled that even those women not required to cover their heads because they're not, pardon me, I should change that. He ruled that even those women not required to cover their hair because they're unmarried or they're girls, young girls, should cover their heads when praying the Amidah. And he separately adds this for saying a bracha, any bracha, and for reading Tanakh, not publicly from the Bima, but they're going to study some Tanakh. They're going to read some Tehillim, or they're going to read the weekly portion to themselves, put on a head covering. Okay, so let us review and conclude. In the Talmudic period, women covered their hair in public with scarves, with no ritual significance, and men did not. So we might say that hair covering was a marker of female gender identity. In the medieval halakhic literature, men covering their heads became required during the rituals of prayer leading, and reading Torah out of respect for the congregation, and also in private prayer out of Yirat Shamayim, knowing before whom you stand. Though it should be noted that this seems to be an import of a cultural idea, namely that one dresses up for a meeting a dignitary. And so we might admit that this also might have a connection to male gender identity, which Rabbi Kenrick does not consider, since who knows how women were to dress to meet a dignitary at least for Yerat Shemaim, though perhaps not for Kavod Hatzibor. When it comes to whether a woman and a child were required to wear a head covering for reading Torah and out of Kavod Hatzibor, the Or Zeruah does not require, but the Shulchan Aruch does. It seems to. In the 1600s, it became common for Jewish men to wear a kippah everywhere, out of Yerat Shemaim, fear of heaven, apparently as a stricture that one is always before God, and not just when davening. And this radically increased in the 1960s and 1970s as a marker of Jewish identity associated with men. Yet even though connected with Jewish men as a marker of Jewish identity, it is not limited to them at all. Even the 20th century ultra-Orthodox decisor Ovadia Yosef, as we noticed, ruled that women should wear a head covering like men during prayer and reading uh, Hebrew Bible due to Yerat Shemayim, knowing before whom they stand. So while we might perceive that kippah is a Jewish male identity marker and modesty hair covering scarves or wigs are female Jewish identity markers, 
The reality is really more complicated. Women are also required to wear head covering, not hair covering, for <coughs> ritual purposes out of Yerat Shemayim, and even in the Shulchan Aruch connected to Torah reading, not to be like men, but because of Kavod Hatzibor. So I'll tell you how she ruled and how the majority went with the CJLS ruling. And I don't necessarily agree with it. It says, because women and girls, this is the actual ruling, because women and girls' customary practice is increasingly moving in the direction of head covering in synagogue, and because the textual tradition leans toward requiring women's head covering, we advocate the following practices. Women and girls should cover their heads when reading from the Torah and when receiving an aliyah. In deference to Kavod Hatzibor, honoring the public when on the bima, women and girls should cover their heads when acting as a prayer leader. Number three, when praying Shacharit, Mincha, or Mariv as an individual, women and girls should cover their heads at least when reciting the Amidah, and ideally during the entire prayer service. And number four, head covering at other times is a matter of personal piety, I would actually say, or identity, which is different, and a woman or girl may cover her hair with a garment of her choice. That garment need not publicly identify her as a Jew. So what is right for this congregation? And how do we process all this information? Well, first, we have even ultra-Orthodox Avadya Yosef saying that women ought to use head covering when davening their Amidah. And this tells us a lot, because it shows that even in a community that builds its entire approach to Judaism on medieval gender distinctions, and I would add the control of women in their bodies, head covering for prayer is not tied to gender but to Yirat Shemayim, the humility of presenting oneself humbly before, the one before whom you stand. So even in a time and in a world in which men wearing kippot everywhere was a male Jewish identity marker, he upheld that women wearing head covering for prayer is a different matter altogether. And this tells me that we ought to educate ourselves that women wearing kippot or other head covering is not a dictate to be like men, to be equal, nor is it about controlling women so they do not attract male attention but it's simply about a way of being humbly before God that ap applies to everyone regardless of gender. I'd like to see it moved away from identity marker, personally, and more to Yerat Shemayim, the God who is around us, the Sinai that we're recreating, the obligation of commandment that comes upon us because of the one before whom we stand and pray. And if a woman wants to do this by wearing a kippah, wonderful, or by scarf, wonderful, or by other head covering, wonderful. But it also tells us a lot that Ovadio Yosef apparently did not enforce his ruling. It's really hard to tell a woman to do something she doesn't feel comfortable doing, and nor should we, whether the we here is a man or a woman. We do not require women in the congregation to wear a talit, even though we really should, because our egalitarianism is based on the fact that women and men are equally bound to the covenant. And when you receive rights, you also receive responsibilities. And that we know that women not being bound to all the commandments that CT represent was based on their being required to handle all of the caregiving, something we believe all are equally bound to in our time, even though it doesn't look that way much of the time. Nevertheless, respecting the comfort level of a woman trumps us, trumps in this case. Just as someone who stands for the Kaddish when others are sitting does so according to Jewish law, to respect the way they were raised, so to women may say, I wasn't raised with Talit, and I'm not going to put on one now. I was raised differently. And even those women who are now in high school, they may not be comfortable with talit because they see it as a marker of male identity or they don't want to dress differently in synagogue than their mother dresses. So we have to respect the weight of the subjective experience of the wearer. We can't suppress female subjectivity in the name of empowering 
female agency. That said, we ought not to allow emotional comfort level to dictate our congregational norms. And if all is left to individual choice, then there's no such thing as congregational norms. There must be a balance. And Jewish law clearly has a history of establishing behavioral norms for showing humility before God and respect for the congregation. And to ignore that these two exist is to mislead and fail to educate that our ritual practices are undergirded, undergirded by these beautiful live values. When you represent the congregation on the bima, you show that their experience and expectations are valuable to you as well as your own. And so you don't wear jeans or casual garb or just what was acceptable in your own home. You cannot lead those whose experience and expectations are not important to you. And we have a beautiful value that the prayers are not just gorgeous songs that you daven along with, but they are meant to challenge you to adopt the mindset of humility, that there is a power in this universe that calls us and who is the ultimate source of values, and that is not my own subjectivity. The practice of head covering, yes, it has become, and maybe it's not a great thing, it's a marker of public identity, but still... Before that, it was rooted in the demand that you know the one before whom you stand. Given these four values, personal subjectivity, women's equality under the law, respect for the congregation, and awe of God, we need to find a balance in our norms that gives them all a voice without allowing one to trump the others. So as Marada Atra of this congregation, after some but not exhaustive conversation with the Religious Affairs Committee, it seems right that we find that balance in not requiring all Jewish women to wear head covering and talit while in the pews, kind of going back to the Shema idea, if you're in the pews, we're not going to bother you, even if there's a strong basis for it in your Shemayim and in understanding covenantal obligations, and I believe it should be, but that we do require talit and head covering for all when leading the service before the ark, leading prayers, and we require head covering for all who are reading Torah or doing the Torah blessings. The Bima is our recreation of Mount Sinai. And thus, our norms must reflect that this community knows what is above our heads and before whom we stand. Shabbat Shalom.